0: Good morning. Who? Okay. Like I said, Pastor Aaron Halverson. So, no. We're thankful for Aaron. I don't know if he's here, but um, I'm filling in for him this morning. My name is Josh Lewis, and I'm the youth leader here at CBC. And this morning, we're kind of in between two different uh, series. And so we're going to be doing a one-off sermon from Matthew chapter 6, looking at a very familiar text, the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew chapter 6. Verses five to fifteen. Uh, I'm going to read read the Lord's prayer in its context, and we're going to look at the context because I think it helps us fully understand what's there in that passage. Um, in in reverence for God and His Word, let's, if you can and you're able, please stand as we hear God's Word. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, but you also have NIVs out there. So, uh, from the English Standard Version, Matthew chapter six. Verses 5 to 15. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Please be seated and I'll open our time in, in a word of prayer. Lord, I simply ask for help. I ask that you would glorify your name. I thank you as we sit under your word this morning already, hearing this good word of truth. Lord, I pray that your word would have its effect in our hearts and in our lives and in this church. Lord, I'm thankful for uh, your church. That You are the head, Lord Jesus. We praise you. I ask that you would be praised in our hearts this morning as we hear your word. We ask for your spirit to open our eyes and ears and to bring about the right effect. Change us, transform us through your word. And we ask for the kids too, as they're gathering for Children's Church, Lord, we pray for the teachers and their time, that you would bless them, that you would build them up, that even right now, children who not yet are in Christ would hear this good news of the gospel and believe And for those who are in Christ, Lord, build them up and strengthen them. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 6. You might be asking kind of why are we looking at this particular passage. Uh, I didn't give you a whole lot of context. And so hearing the word hypocrites right off the bat might seem kind of offensive. I I was really led to this passage mainly because here we are between two different sermon series. We just finished up 1 Peter. We spent a, a few months there. Um, and next sermon series, as you've just heard this morning, is going to be in John. We're going to be taking maybe the, one whole semester, about six months, to go through the Gospel of John. And as we go through John, the hope is that not only will we see Jesus personally, we will read and hear from John's Gospel and, and examine it and see Jesus for who he is, but also that we would invite others, whether it's another believer we know, a young, younger believer, someone who's not yet in Christ— we would invite them to read about Jesus in John's gospel, that we would say, come and see, come and see this glorious Christ. And as we do that, whether you've been through John, and you're like, I've been through John many times, I know that story, I know Jesus, or maybe you, you're not that familiar with John, it's been a while, maybe you're not yet in Christ, regardless of where you are at in your relationship to God, the, the reality is we must pray. We as a church must pray. In John, Jesus himself will say, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. I think what he means there is no one can come to him savingly, seeing who he is as Savior, coming to him for life, unless God doesn't work in their heart. Paul will later pray to the uh, uh, believers in Ephesus. To believers, he says, he prays that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. He's pointing there to the fact that as believers, we need God's Spirit to continue to enable us to know God, to see Him clearly, and to obey Him. So, I think the bottom line is that we need to pray. If we're going to spend time in John ourselves and inviting others, we must pray that God would open our eyes. He would enable us to see and love God the son for who he is. And so that's the hope here was what led me here. I thought, well, let's talk about prayer. And then I thought, well, what's, what's a good prayer? Well, the Lord's prayer. And so that's what brought us to this particular text this morning. But not only is this going to be an encouragement to pray, I hope that this is an encouragement and that God uses his word to help us pray well. I was even encouraged this morning, as, as Walt led us in prayer, that we have many people in this church who pray and who pray well. And so I hope in many ways this is an encouragement to us as a church. But let me just open with maybe a bad prayer, because there are still many bad prayers out there. Uh, the context to this prayer, which is what I think makes it so bad, is a high school football game. We've all been there. Maybe you've prayed a prayer like this or heard it. You're You're in your sport. You're about to pray. So we have two schools, what's even more ironic, these are both Catholic schools, so they're purportedly Christian schools facing one another in a high school football game, and here's the prayer. I'm not trying to be critical of this school, I don't think it's a great prayer though. So, the the coach, I believe, says, Lord, you have crushed our enemies and removed our distractions as we assemble for our reckoning, purify our souls by humbling our minds for the moment at hand. Remind us of the sacrifices we've made to reemerge today on the anniversary of our pain. Remove from us the feeling of disgrace and unworthiness and instill into us your grace, strength, and greatness. Now, while always helping us to remember our commitment to, inserts this woman's name, our Lady Queen of Victory. And then there's yelling and cheering, and the guys run out on the field, and it's exciting, and it sounds like this epic battle between good and evil. And it seems that this coach has forgotten uh, the, the true king and the true kingdom that Christians belong to and that we live in. It Sounds almost like he's treating the other teams as, as the enemies and forces of evil whom they've overcome. So I, I really don't think that this prayer was really all that pleasing to God. I'm not trying to be judgmental or critical, but I hope that we pray well as a church. I hope that we pray in a way that's pleasing to God. And the good news, part of the good news, is that God has not left us uninformed about how we can please him with our prayers he's given us his instruction in his word and so this particular passage is filled with good teaching on how we can pray in a way that pleases god we're going to see four particular things so a prayer life or prayer pleasing to god in the first two verses verse five and six is is prayer that is directed to god for his reward In verses 7 to 8, a prayer life that pleases God uses meaningful language to communicate our hearts to God. Verses 9 to 13, a prayer pleasing to God is shaped by God's priorities. And then finally, in the last two verses, prayers pleasing to God are gripped by His grace. And again, my hope is that we would pray and pray well. As we sit under this word. So verses 5 to 6. Prayer pleasing to God is directed to God for his reward. So a quick note about this overall section. Many of us are familiar with what people call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 to 7. This falls in chapter 6. And Jesus has been explaining in this section. He's talking to his disciples about a way of life that is pleasing to God. And he's contrasting it with the way of life of hypocrites or people in the the religious community who are really pretending to live out a pious life. And ultimately, they're not living that life out to please God. They're doing it for some other reason, a reward. So he talks about the ways that his disciples must live. He doesn't say, stop doing these pious things. Stop living out your religious life. He says, keep doing it, but here's the way to do it in a way pleasing to God. So that's with regard to their giving, with regard to their prayers, and with regard to their fasting. These things are things that the church, Jesus' disciples, still must do. But how do they do it in a way pleasing to God? So, first, Jesus contrasts the way that his disciples should pray with the way that he sees hypocrites praying. Anyone who's grown up around the church or anyone who knows American culture is familiar with the word hypocrite but I want to make sure that we review it. A hypocrite is someone who acts one way when it's not really reflective of reality. They're just pretending. They're pretending to be something that they very clearly are not. They're acting. And so Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Why? He says, these prayers of the hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. That. That's the reason. What's the reason they pray? What's their motivation? That they may be seen by others. So, why do they pray? They pray not really to talk to God. They're pretending to talk to God. They're acting like it. But really, they want other people to see that they're talking to God. They're acting. They're double-minded. They're double-tongued and divided in heart. So, I don't know if any of you have read the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a children's storybook Bible. It's helpful for reflection and meditation. I think our girls have appreciated it. And I like it. I think it helps. It points some things out that sometimes I've missed. But I really enjoy the picture that accompanies this passage. It has some men standing out somewhere in public with one eye opened and one eye closed. And so, why are they doing that? Well, first... And I've learned this as a a young parent. When we ask our children to close their eyes when they pray, this is a very good idea. This is a very good idea. In fact, if you're an adult, closing your eyes when you pray is a very good idea. Why? Well, when we're praying, who are we talking to? We're talking to God. We're directing our prayers to God. And we are easily distracted. Adults and children alike, but especially young children who are in my house, who I'm trying to lead in devotion, and there's a chip or a toy or a phone. So we are easily distracted people. And so when we close our eyes, it's because we want to focus our hearts on the God we pray to. Now, these hypocrites have one eye closed and one eye open because they're pretending to be talking to God, but in reality, they want to see what other people think. They really care. They're really seeking not God's ear, Not a reward from God, but they want a human, earthly reward from people around them. They want praise. Here's Jesus' warning to us, to his disciples, when we pray like that. It's It's a warning. You'll get the reward you want. You'll get what you want. People will think you're righteous. They'll think you're holy, spiritual, zealous for God people. That's your reward. A fleeting, temporary praise from other people. But you will forfeit the reward from God. You will not receive the reward from God because your prayers are not directed to God. You're seeking after man's praise. So Jesus' warning is simple. Instead, his disciples, in a way to please God, are not to pray publicly in a way that is ultimately seeking people's praise. They're to go where? He tells them instead to go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. My girls are also into riddles right now. I'll give you a little riddle to keep you on your toes. So if you go into a closed room with the door shut all by yourself, who sees you? There's probably different answers. Um, If one of the guys from youth group Nahum was here, I'm sure he'd think of something funny to say. But only God sees you. When you go into a closed room with no one else in it and the door shut, the simple point is that you're all alone. So why would you go into that room? It has nothing to do with other people. It has nothing to do with what people think about you. It has everything to do with what you want to do in that room. You want God to hear you. You're coming to God to hear your voice because you want to talk to him. You want to lay your request before him. You want his reward. Now, I will unapologetically say I'm not going to get into the rewards. It's a little complex. I want to keep this um, sermon somewhat shorter. So, but ultimately you want God's reward. You're seeking him, his ear. That's what that means. So it's really not, I don't think this is ultimately about the place that you're praying. We're going to see that Jesus prays in public before he breaks bread. He prays in public. The disciples pray in public. They pray corporately. This is not ultimately a prohibition against corporate prayer. What this is pointing out is what is our motive in praying? So that's two questions I think we should wisely ask. Is first, why are we praying? Why am I praying? And secondly, who am I praying to? In the very least, first, this means that we need to be very careful. Jesus gives two warnings in this passage because there's two very real things that we need to be careful we need to avoid his, as his disciples. There's a temptation in my heart and in our hearts to make prayer something that's ultimately about us and not about God. It's something that turns praise to ourselves away from God. God is the one who's worthy of praise, we've sung about this morning, not us. So prayer, is tempt, it's tempting to make that about us. Jesus warns us, be careful, don't do that, don't pray like this. Instead, pray to your father who sees in secret. So we need to be careful. Are our prayers ultimately wanting other people to think that we're evangelistic or that we're zealous for God, that we're spiritual people? We need to be on guard when we're praying corporately. But I think there's a second thing that we need to be careful of. It's interesting that he doesn't note who they are praying to. He just says they go out and they pray. And then he says of his disciples, but you are to pray to your father. I think this is a little more nuanced, but I think this is a legitimate application. And I say it because, honestly, this is something that I'm tempted by, something that I fall into. When we pray, who are we talking to? We're talking to God. Now, this can be very tempting. You know, so and so's in our room. We're praying together. I really want so-and-so to know that they're loved and cared about. And I'm going to make this prayer. I'm going to start talking kind of to them. I'm going to speak some words of love and encouragement and care to them. That's not wrong, but it's not prayer. Encouragement is a good thing. The same thing can be true of teaching. Prayer can teach. Good prayer teaches us how to pray. But if we're teaching, we're not praying. There's a warning here. You'll get what we want. If we turn all of our prayers into teaching and encouragement, we're no longer talking to God. So this is a warning for me. When I'm talking, if I'm praying in a way pleasing to God... I'm talking to God, not talking to other people, and I'm not looking for other people's praise. That is his encouragement towards prayer pleasing to God. So let's assume we're doing that. I'm seeking God in prayer, but what do I say? What are the words that I say when I come to him in prayer? Next, in verses 7 to 8, prayer pleasing to God uses meaningful language to communicate our hearts to God. So he says, and when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, and he instructs them how they're to pray. So next, the contrast first was with hypocrites and their wrong motive, the wrong reason that they're praying. But now Jesus is going to warn against a wrong way of praying, a wrong method, a wrong manner of praying. Now, and he's not talking about hypocrites at this point. He's saying, don't model your prayers after the Gentiles, after the pagan world. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, but prayer is not a unique thing to the Christian faith. Many people of different faiths pray. They have some sort of prayer language. They utter words to who they worship as their God, or it's just part of their meditation. So if you tell someone that you're praying, or that you're praying for them, it it probably won't be all that offensive, Prayer is not distinctively Christian. So there's Gentiles around the, the disciples of Jesus. And he says, don't pray like these Gentiles. They pray too, but do not be like them. Why? Well, the Gentiles fundamentally have a misunderstanding of the character of God. And it shows in how they pray and the manner that they pray. So this phrase, heap up empty phrases. It's also translated uh, in the NLT as babble on. Not the city, but Babel babble on, or talk on and on, or in the NASB 95, use meaningless repetition. So, the reason the Gentiles do this is they think that the more words they use, the more likely it will be that their their gods or whoever they're praying to will hear them. They think quantity over quality. It actually, it doesn't even matter what we're saying, we just got to say it a lot. You know, you can think of modern equivalents of... Different religions or even Christian prayers that sound like they're just trying to say as many possible things as they can. And maybe they're even using lots of flowery language. Jesus says, You don't need to do that. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I like, think there's two things to that. First, it's your Father. He tells the disciples, You're praying to your Father. There's care. There's love. Your father cares for you. He knows what you need. So secondly, he already knows. You're not informing God, nor are we manipulating God. I think that's part of this meaningless repetition. There's almost this idea in the Gentile world of God being this being in the sky who we can manipulate. And if we use the right magical phrases and words, God will give us what we want. Prayer becomes manipulation as opposed to communion and communication with God. And Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't pray like the Gentiles. God knows what you need. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So prayer is not about manipulation, but about authentic communication. So what are some examples of how we might actually do that in our own lives? We should. We must be careful not to do this, not to pray like the Gentiles. Here's just one thought that came to mind. So, I think it was two or three weeks ago, we had a corporate prayer time, and this morning my my girls were coloring, they were not praying, but last time I was really excited because one of my daughters said, Dad, what does imputed mean? So she did not know what the word imputed meant, and actually that's a good thing, I'm glad she asked. I think it's good that we use the word imputed in our prayers. That is a good biblical word. I praise God that he has credited to me Christ's righteousness and given to Christ my sin. That's a great word. Now, if you don't know what imputed means, don't use it in a prayer, right? Well, What would what would be the benefit of saying, oh Lord, imputed, imputed, ah. So I just imagine using the right Christian words but having no idea what they mean. Do you think God would be pleased with a prayer like that? Uh, I say this kind of as a warning as a parent, but also as a, as a, a person in this church. We need to be careful because it can be tempting, particularly for kids, to see us praying prayers with words that are good and think, okay, mom and dad use this word. People around me use this word. Maybe this is a word that will get God to hear me, that will get God to listen to me. Now, Jesus warns, no, that's not what prayer is about. It's not about magic language. It's not about good spiritual words that will impress God. It's about genuine, authentic communication using meaningful language. God doesn't need informed about our situation. He knows. God doesn't need twisted to care for us. He cares for you if you're in Christ. He cares about you. He loves you. He knows what you need. So use simple, clear, understandable language when you talk to God. The Bible is full of good language to use, but if you don't know what it means, don't use it. We're going to get to it in a minute. We're going to talk about the word hallowed. I don't know how many times I prayed as a youth the word hallowed without really even knowing what it meant. So, use the words that you understand. Communicate with God genuinely and authentically. Psalm 62 exhorts us, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him. God is a refuge for us. So, We're coming to God, prayer that pleases God, seeks his ear. We're talking to him for his reward, not some human praise. And we're using simple, clear language, language that he understands. We're talking to him. Two simple things. Prayer pleasing to God is shaped by his priorities. So we reach the Lord's Prayer and as I read about this and studied and thought about it, there is so much that could be said about the Lord's Prayer. I will not pretend to cover all of this prayer this morning. I really want to cover the contours. I want to look at the big idea of it and then try to apply that to us this morning. Um, some called it the prayer of prayers. And this is such a wonderful prayer. And so I hope that we better understand it and appreciate it for what it is and use it well. This prayer is a model. Let me read it and then we'll talk about it. But... The prayer is, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So, first, notice this prayer as a model. What does that exactly mean? So, I don't think it is wrong at all to pray this prayer verbatim. To literally pray the exact same words. I don't think that's wrong. As we're doing it with a genuine heart that is communicating words. If you are able, and I'm able to do this with some songs, some of you might know this too, you can do this. You can sing a song and all of a sudden the right words are coming out of your mouth but you're thinking about uh, something over there. Or you're looking down at your shoes and noticing there's a stain. You can say the words that are coming out of your mouth But your hearts, my heart, isn't reflecting what's coming out. So the point, again, is genuine, authentic communication, that our lips match our hearts. And so I do think this prayer is given to us as a model, as a pattern. And we're going to look at this in a minute. But if you look at the prayers of the New Testament, you'll see that they're not literally this prayer over and over. They are prayers that are shaped by this prayer. Prayers that reflect this prayer's priorities. So, what are the priorities in the Lord's Prayer? Most of you, this is not new. There's really six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. The first three are directed towards God. And you see that very clearly because it's your, your, your. And the second three petitions are for God's people. So the first three petitions are for God's glory. The last three petitions are for our good, the good of God's church. But at the very beginning, some people include this in the, in the petitions. It says, Our Father in heaven. Now, I think this is, this is a separate part. This is our address, the disciples' address to God. Our Father in heaven. And really, this prayer begins, good, a prayer begins with a gospel foundation. That God is both the Father of the disciples and in heaven, which I don't think is just a location, it's pointing to his transcendence. He is beyond us, he's different than us, he is holy. That's what we sang this morning. Is amazing. That God is both intimate and transcendent. That God is holy, 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 and yet sinners like you and me can approach him in genuine relationship. That God is the one who spoke the worlds into being with a word. He who is and was and is to come, and yet we can know him personally, in relationship. That is an amazing reality and it's made possible only through Jesus. And First Timothy says, there's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who enables us to pray and it's his grace that enables us to pray rightly. And so all good prayer, prayer pleasing to God comes from this place of grateful humility. I come to God, the God of the universe, by grace alone, through Christ alone. This is a gracious gift. So that is the foundation for prayer. Our Father in heaven. And then there's a prayer for his glory. So three petitions for God's glory. They're somewhere. Okay. So that these three petitions for God's glory, all three of them clearly tied together by this idea of your. Your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So this is all about God. The desire, the primary desire, the first priority in this prayer is God. His glory. His kingdom. His name. So in light of the gospel... In light of the good news of who I am, a sinner in need of salvation, a rebel, a person whose kingdom clearly has been demonstrated to be terrible, I do not want my kingdom. I do not want my will. I do not want my name proclaimed to the ends of the earth, but God's. We want God's name, his kingdom come, his rule and reign here in this place. His will to be done. So I want to kind of illustrate this with just the first one. Hallowed be your name. So what does the word hallowed mean? Some of you don't feel embarrassed if you're like, okay, I don't actually... Okay, that's me. I don't know what it means. Hallowed is from the same root of the word sanctifier, set apart. For God's name to be hallowed is for God's name to be treated for what it is. God is hallowed. He is holy. But this request is that we would live in such a way this world would operate in such a way that people treat God's name as it ought to be treated. That we personally live our lives, live out life in this church, use technology and phones, speak to one another, think of one another in a way that treats God in his name as holy. That's what that request is. Hallowed be your name. May we in this place, may I personally and my family treat your name as holy. And live in a way honoring to you. It's ultimately God, we want your name to be worshiped, adored, enjoyed, and praised. Uh, Psalm 86, 8 to 10 says, There is no God like you among the gods, O Lord. There is no works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great. And do wondrous things. You alone are God. The primary priority in this prayer is that God would be known for who He is, God. And then, second, these second three petitions, the, is, we'll see the well rounded good of God's people. This well rounded good of God's people. So, it's not merely my good. Remember this morning, as you hear this prayer, it's our Father in heaven and it's give us this day our daily bread. This prayer reminds us as we pray, we are not alone. It's really easy if we shrink our world down to just me to make prayer all about my needs, my concerns, my desires, my relationship with God. But this reminds us that we are one member in a large family. We are one part in a body made up of different parts. It's not about me, ultimately. It's about us. It's about a people, God's people. But secondly, this is a really well-rounded prayer. So we're not really going to get into these three things, but the first one is very clearly physical provision. So give us today our daily bread, physical provision. That could be anything physically in this world. Some people would basically say this points to God's provision and over-creation in general. So that could be really anything physically, your health, your, your body, your physical needs. Later in this sermon, Jesus talks about bread and food. All of these things fall under this desire. Lord, give us what we need today. Now this also points out our dependence on God. Give us what we need today. Not give us what we need for the year. But Lord, give us what we need today. But that's not where the prayer stops. It continues, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I was reminded as we met this morning, God in his grace reminded me in the seat as Walt led us in prayer, I don't know how many times I've confessed to God my sin this week. Now I'm not trying to set a pattern or say we have to confess this many times, but I can go from Sunday to Sunday without confessing sin. Because I'm just, it's it's hard. I don't think of it. I don't follow this pattern as well as I ought. It is a good thing to remember who we are, as sinners, But remember who Christ has made us if you've trusted in him. Forgiven. And that changes how you treat other people. This is part of our prayer life. This is part of the prayer shaped by God's priorities. And then last, lead us not into temptation or deliver us from the evil one or from evil. So how often this prayer points to the fight that we have in this world against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So it is not easy to be a disciple of Jesus. Everywhere, every day, you face a fight. You face friction. You face trouble. And this is spiritually true. There's temptation to just give up or to give in or to stop fighting. And this last part of the prayer says, God, give me the grace that I need to endure. Just like in Ephesians 6, Paul tells us we're in a spiritual war and if you're going to stand firm, you need to stand firm in the strength of the Lord. This is a person saying, God, give me the grace I need to stand in the spiritual battle I'm in. I don't want to give in to these temptations around me. So, I mentioned earlier Jesus' own prayers and the apostles and the New Testament church reflect this shape. So they are shaped by these priorities. You could say the stamp of them is all over the New Testament prayers. And so if you just look at some of the New Testament prayers, you will see these priorities reflected. Just... Walk through some of them here this morning. Jesus himself prayed in his hour of greatest trial, not my will be done, but Lord, your will be done. In the face of persecution and physical suffering, the church gathered together and didn't pray, God, stop the suffering and persecution, but God, make us bold witnesses that people can hear the good news of the gospel. That was in Acts chapter four. Stephen, as he's being killed, prays, forgive them. Of their sins, Forgive these men of their sins as he was being killed in Acts chapter 7. Paul prays for Christians in Ephesus to have eyes to see the great hope they have in Jesus. To have strength to comprehend the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ for them. And then when he's in prison, later in that letter, he doesn't say, set me free. He doesn't say, please, Ephesians, pray for my freedom. He says, pray for me that I will make the gospel known, that I will have boldness in preaching the gospel. And then finally, the final words of the New Testament in Revelation are, Come, Lord Jesus. Right at the very end. So, come, Lord Jesus. Essentially, your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. So these priorities are, are all over the New Testament prayers. And the question is, how often do these priorities reflect our priorities and our petitions are our prayers shaped by these priorities first and foremost is god at the center of our prayer life is our desire that god would be praised as he ought to be that he would be worshiped and loved and known in our community in our church in our family and then second are we praying not just for one of those petitions Maybe we have a temptation to go to one of those final three. Is it all three? Are we praying not just for physical things, not just for spiritual battle, not just for discernment, but for all of those things? Uh, We're reminded later in this sermon, Jesus says, don't, well, earlier he says, don't be like the Gentiles who only love people who love them. Later, he'll say, don't be like the Gentiles who only seek things in this world. They're just worried about food and clothing. Don't be like them. Here, we're reminded, don't pray like the Gentiles. Our prayers should be like this, prioritizing God's priorities, his kingdom and his righteousness. But finally, and very briefly, in verses 14 to 15, prayers pleasing to God are gripped by grace. They're gripped by his grace. Jesus adds this last little section, verses 14 to 15. He says, for... If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I think Jesus here is clarifying. He's adding some commentary to the fifth petition, which was, Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven those, or forgiven our debtors. So he's reminding his community, his disciples, of the kind of community they are to be. And the fact that he had to add this clarification reminds us of how difficult it is to forgive others in our own strength. That the forgiveness of others ultimately comes not from our own strength but reflecting, remembering and believing in the gospel. That God in Christ has forgiven you of your sins and brought you into right relationship with himself. Undeserved. Therefore, how ought we treat others? How ought we must forgive others. Paul actually says, "Be kind to one another and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." So, the fact that this is reiterated shows how hard it is, and the encouragement is that we do this by his grace. We love because he first loved us. So, before we close, I want to remember one thing about this sermon. Jesus ends the sermon Matthew chapter 7, saying, not, blessed are you for hearing these things, but he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So, my hope in looking at this prayer this morning isn't just that we would know better about how to pray, that we would, we would know what kind of prayer pleases God, but the hope, really driven by what we're about to do, entering into studying John, inviting others to do it, is that we would pray as a church in a way pleasing to God. I know that we're already praying, but I hope this encourages us and equips us to pray well. So, imagine then, us as a church, praying in this way. Imagine that when we come together, whether we're in our homes by ourselves or coming together corporately as a church, we are praying in this way. We're not coming together that people would think that we're, we're good and righteous people because we came to the prayer meeting. We're not coming and saying words so that people would think well of us. We as one people, united in one mind, are praying that God would hear us and answer our prayers, that He would reward. We're coming to Him, that He would hear us. And we're coming speaking not good sounding words and we're not talking to one another just in a room. We're talking to God together using meaningful language that His name would be hallowed. Imagine just that one sentence. If that was our prayer, I've been doing this a little bit more often the last couple weeks. Just as I walk around wherever I'm at, the grocery store, I'm at my home, hallowed be your name. Imagine that. We as a church praying, God, hallowed be your name in this church. May your name be treated as holy as it is. May we as a people live lives that say God is God and there's no other. As we as a church would be praying as we enter into this season reading the Gospel of John, may people read John and see Jesus and worship Jesus as the only name by which we can be saved and enjoy God through him. That's what I think it means, this idea of God being hallowed. So, hopefully, this has encouraged us. I hope that we pray in a way pleasing to God and that we pray more in this season. I'm going to Close in prayer, and I was a little scared, honestly. After covering this whole thing, it's like, am I really going to even be able to pray in a way that's pleasing to God? So, yes, by God's grace, he's given us his spirit. So let me just lead us in prayer and close. Lord, thank you. Thank you. If I prayed prayers according to my wisdom, how unpleasing to you they were and they would be but God in your grace you've given us not just forgiveness of sins in Christ which is amazing not just new relationship by faith in Christ with you but you've given us instruction about how we can live lives pleasing to you and Lord we ask use this word use this time this morning to make us a people that pray more and pray well not for our glory as a church, not for my name, not for our name, Lord, but that your name would receive the glory and honor and praise that it's due. Lord, we thank you for your mercy in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would reflect on it and believe in it and for anyone who's not yet in Christ, that they would do the first thing to hallow your name, which is to receive the free gift of life in Christ. Offered to them by faith because of what you've done, Lord Jesus. We praise you. We ask all this in your name. Amen.